Today's podcast, Why It Takes Two to Tango, Two. Welcome to the JRMD podcast. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by four authors across two continents to discuss two recent papers on Tango 2 deficiency. From France, I'm joined by Dr. Sebastian Montaligre and Dr. Pascal Delonle, two of the authors of the paper, Clinical and Biological Characterization of 20 Patients with Tango 2 Deficiency, Indicates Novel Triggers of Metabolic Crises and No Primary Energetic Defect. Um, good afternoon, Sebastian and Pascal. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And Dr. Felix Distelmeyer and Dr. Michael Satcher, two of the authors of the phenotype associated with variants in Tango 2, may be explained by a dual role of the protein in ER to Golgi transport and at the mitochondria. Uh, good morning, Felix and Michael. Yeah. Hi, James. Good morning. Thank you all for finding the time to speak with me. Um, now, you wait ages for a paper on Tango 2 deficiency and then two come along at once. Is this a coincidence? I don't think it's a coincidence. I think um, the Tango 2 Research Foundation seems to be quite well organized, well run, and, and they seem serious and determined to build knowledge about this disease. So I think uh, it's not necessarily a coincidence that this is all happening at once. And it's not just these two papers. There were several other papers on Tango 2 that have come out within the last year or so. Well, I think uh, Michael is absolutely right. The Tango 2 Research Foundation and the, the parents uh, involved there, I think they're extremely busy in trying to get researchers together and to also to finance, of course, uh, research projects. And uh, summer last year, there was also this uh, Tango 2 Research Conference where some of the researchers here also presented some of their work. And so I think we were at some point already in contact with each other in the past. And so I think it's it's mainly also the the parent organization which is bringing forward this scientific work. Well, also apart from the Tango 2 organization, which kindly supports our work here in France as well, we have uh, several foundations in this country that are supporting us. For example, the, the Nomiolis Foundation or the Nosange Foundation, which not only take care of, of Tango 2, but also of, uh, in general of energetic diseases or rhabdomyolysis. So all as a community of scientists and, and clinicians are coming together. And of course, in the case of Tango, I mean, we were at some point criticized because we were using the term new disease, but it seems that after four years of the discovery of the gene, this is not so new, although we have a lot to discover yet. And it's a new gene involved in human disease, and we have a lot of teams add quickly a large cohort of patients. So 20 patients in rare disease is a lot of patients. So immediately we had a lot of mutations in, uh, in patients with uh, a known disease. Thank you for that. Something that we've discussed before in this podcast is how dependent rare disease research is on the passion of small groups of clinicians and patients and their families. In this case, Tango 2 deficiency, well, you just said it's, it's not as new as we perhaps describe it as being, but rather the understanding of it is quite new. I wonder if one of you would be able to explain the background behind this disease. From a clinical perspective, well, I was involved in the first description of the disease in 2016. I mean, there were two papers that came out back to back that described the, the first cases of Tango 2 deficiency. And we had families here, for example, in, in Düsseldorf in Germany that we were seeing. And um, the disease cause was quite puzzling for us because the patients presented with uh, clinical features that are, let's say, partially identical with some fatty acid oxidation uh, disorders that we know. So these patients had an in infection 
triggered or febrile illness triggered acute episodes with severe metabolic decompensation with severe rhabdomyolysis, hypoglycemia, and they had severe neurological problems then during the course of the disease with uh, severe epilepsy, epileptic encephalopathy, but also, for example, cardiac arrhythmia, uh, hypothyroidism, so many, let's say, different features coming together. And on the other hand, we also saw uh, metabolic abnormalities like lactic acidosis and hypoglycemia that was in some way also reminding us of uh, mitochondrial diseases. And so many investigations were done in these families in the past without any clear results. And then only the broad genetics uh, screening, so the exome sequencing finally revealed the underlying defect, which was this uh, Tango 2 gene defect. It, it was a, a, a new gene in the physiopathology. We don't know the physiopathology of this disease. We know some disease, of course, with a lot of symptoms, like respiratory chain deficiency, like CDG syndromes. But it's very rare to have a lot of symptoms uh, which are not uh, um, explained by energetic disease or a CDG syndrome. So we knew that it was a new disease with a lot of symptoms and it was surprising for the physicians. So we're talking today about two different papers, one characterizing the clinical and biological features in 20 patients with Tango 2 deficiency and the other trying to explain the variations seen in this clinical phenotype. I wonder if we could begin uh, with Sebastian and, and Pascal's work on the clinical phenotype and what you saw in your patients. So we saw firstly a big heterogeneity uh, in the patients and in the same family and we have no correlation between a phenotype and genetics. And we had chronic symptoms like uh, mental retardation, like hypothyroidism. And we had acute symptoms like rhabdomyolysis, heart symptoms with arrhythmia and uh, related to environmental stress. So we have a combination of chronic and acute symptoms. And we have a big heterogeneity because we have some normal patients with no symptoms in siblings and some siblings with very severe phenotype with arrhythmia, heart symptoms and encephalopathy, etc. And then bench to bedside, let's say, kind of work. So we had the, what the clinicians observed in this large cohort, which is the, the largest so far reported. And then we did some functional studies in cells derived from the muscles of such of these patients. And the way we started this kind of, of experiments was based on the literature based on uh, saying that there are at least two possible phenotypes. One is the transfer phenotype that was supposed to be described originally in the 2007 paper, where the ear and the Golgi were, were supposed to be fused, something that we didn't find in our primary myoblast. And I suppose that uh, Michael and Felix will elaborate on this later. But the other part that we also wanted to evaluate was the, the mitochondrial function. Since we are supposed to be dealing with a, an energetic disease, so basically what we did was by several biochemical and even microscopic methods, we evaluated the function of this, the Krebs cycle and the beta oxidation and the acyl carnitines. And very surprisingly to, uh, in our hands, we didn't find any deficit in the respiratory chain of these patients. We did that in, in, in cells, in plasma from patients, and then we evaluated also by biochemistry, looking at the, the integrity of the respiratory change proteins, and we did find barely any defect. We also analyzed the shape of the mitochondria, which also uh, Felix and Michael did. In our case, we didn't find any significant difference, 
perhaps because of the amount of cells that we counted. But we, at whatever the case, whatever we did, looking at mitochondria, we didn't see anything remarkably striking in the sense that to, to us, and that's why the paper is called No Primary Energetic Disease, is because if we look at these cells and we don't touch them, in our hands, they, these cells, they don't have anything wrong with the mitochondria. So at the very end, what we did was to look at the, at the cells upon some perturbation where we tried to mimic what, the, what is the situation in the patient. For example, we tried to provide some starvation, which is a condition that, that in, in the patient will, will provoke rhabdomyolysis. And there we found some sort of indication that the mitochondrial DNA was increased. But then when we tried to clear it by whatever cellular procedure, in at least one of the patients, we found a defect in the clearance of this proxy that we have for mitochondrial function, such as the mitochondrial DNA. So that's where we finalize our functional assay, where we say that uh, in our discussion, we propose that perhaps the Tango 2 disease at the level of the mitochondria is only a, a secondary effect that will happen as soon as, as there is an external perturbation. As you say, it's a really impressive case series, the largest one of its type. And so one of the conclusions that you drew was that the Tango 2 deficiency represents a secondary rather than a primary mitochondrial defect. Um, this feels like a good time to bring in Felix and Michael to explain what their group found and perhaps explain some of those comments you made just then. Maybe I just uh, start briefly and then Michael can take over just to explain how our connection evolved. So for me, it was unclear what kind of metabolic problem is underlying this clinical presentation. And then after this genetic part or the genetic description of the first patients, we were also looking at metabolic abnormalities in patient skin fibroblasts, for example, and didn't see any clear or obvious problems, especially in, in view of, for example, a fatty acid oxidation or certain mitochondrial parameters that we are looking at. And then I came across a paper where uh, Michael Sacher was involved, and that was on a defect which is called TRAP-C2L, which is a disease that uh, the patients have a problem in ER2 Golgi trafficking. And the disease phenotype uh, was reminding me a lot of what we see in, in Tango 2 deficiency. So also these patients had febrile illness, triggered metabolic crisis with severe rhabdomyolysis and severe neurological problems uh, following these crises. And according to that, I got in contact with Michael and told him about what I was thinking regarding these Tango 2 patients. And he is definitely the expert on these ER to Golgi trafficking defects. And I was asking him if he would be interested to investigate cell lines of these Tango 2 patients. And this is how our collaboration started. Yeah. And so, so like Felix says, we do routinely study movement of proteins between the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi. And as Sebastian has already mentioned, the original paper that described Tango 2 described it as a protein that functions in that pathway between the ER and the Golgi. So we went in with this biased approach. We're, we're, we're the basic biologists in, in the collaboration here. And we just went in with, with the bias that it was probably going to be affecting transport between the ER and the Golgi. And so we looked at some proteins that we normally look at by techniques that we routinely use. And to no surprise, really, we found that there was quite a severe delay in transporting uh, the cargo, the markers that we were looking at from the ER to the Golgi. And it was Tango 2 dependent because when we put in a a wild-type Tango 2 gene, we were able to rescue that defect. So we thought of this is involved in ER to Golgi transport. And so we started doing some more uh, fundamental work in cellular fractionation, 
We noticed a small portion of the protein was found on membranes. We fully assumed that the protein would be on the ER or the Golgi, as many proteins that function in that process are localized to those compartments. And so the research associate in my lab who was doing this work, Dr. Miroslav Milab, put in a um, fluorescently tagged Tango 2 uh, into cells. And depending on where that fluorescent protein was, if it was at the amino terminus of Tango 2, it just looked like the protein was diffusely localized throughout the cell. But when it was at the carboxy terminus of the protein, it had a very distinct pattern in the cells, which did not look like ER or Golgi, which we've seen plenty of times. And in fact, it reminded him of some work we had done a few years before on mitochondria. And he co-stained those cells and found very good co-localization at the mitochondria. And some other papers that came out a number of years ago, I think also in uh, JIMD, had suggested that the amino terminal portion of Tango 2 might have a, a leader sequence that directs mitochondrial localization. And that particular paper suggested that that wasn't the case. But we went back and looked at that and deleted the first 30 or 40 amino acids of Tango 2 and found that it no longer localized to the mitochondria. And when we put it on to a fluorescent protein that is normally diffusely localized, we saw an increase in the amount of that fluorescent protein in, at the mitochondria. So that immediately suggested to us that Tango 2 is probably localizing to the mitochondria, doing something to the mitochondria, which is somehow affecting ER to Golgi transport. So I'm not sure that the necessarily the ER to Golgi defect is the primary defect or the primary function of Tango 2, but maybe it's a, an indirect consequence of, of changing energy levels within the cell. We, we looked at the mitochondria in the cells, and I guess in contrast a bit to what Pascal and Sebastian had seen, we, we saw subtle defects in the morphology of mitochondria. There were slightly more mitochondria. They were a little bit uh, on the smaller side, suggesting that uh, mitochondrial fusion, fission balance was disrupted, and that could be a result of changes in mitochondrial function. And so that's basically what we had tackled in the uh, in the paper. I think came up in a discussion actually recently at a with someone from the Tango Two Foundation as to whether they thought the function of Tango 2 or elucidating the function would be elusive. And my answer to that was, I didn't think it's going to be elusive. I think the difference between Tango 2 and other proteins that I've worked on uh, is that there's just really not much of a foundation to build on. We really need to understand some more basic biology about Tango 2 in order to better understand its role in the disease state. And that's sort of where we're coming from and, and pursuing that a little bit, a little bit further. Thank you. So this is a, a severe disease, and I, I don't want to sort of break away from the science, but for me, speaking sort of as a, a generalist and a clinician, the big worry is this risk of life-threatening decompensations. I know, Sebastian and Pascal, you made some recommendations around management uh, and emergency management of this condition, and I wonder if you could elaborate on those and whether the four of you could say uh, how your work takes us forward and, and does it sort of offer any avenues towards treatments? Yes, it's uh, the observation of the patients, of course, uh, because we don't know the physiopathology of the disease yet. But probably the fasting is not good for patients. But we don't need nocturnal enteral food if the patients eat easily. And uh, we have some contradictions. Probably be careful with some drugs for the anesthesia, drugs contraindicated in the Brigada syndrome, contraindicated in the arrhythmia. 
and we had a question about the carnitine. Carnitine is easily uh, done in metabolic disease, but the patients have normal uh, carnitine concentration in plasma. And in one case, reanimators uh, looked at one patient with uh, acute arrhythmia just after the administration of carnitine. So we need to be prudent, but because we don't need probably to give carnitine in the patients, in general, we have the, the question of the contraindications of the carnitine, but it's about one patient, so we need to be prudent. It's very, very difficult to, to say something in the natural uh, medical story of the patients about one uh, episode of complications after uh, one drug administration. So the fasting, probably the list of uh, drugs contraindicated in uh, Brugada syndrome, long QT, so arrhythmia, uh, probably uh, precaution about uh, general anesthesia, and after, I don't know. Regarding the, the clinical recommendations, it's, it's very important, I think, to, to talk to the affected families about the problems that we have in really understanding the, the metabolic disease and therefore it's also very difficult to give clear recommendations. I think what is definitely the case is that drugs should be avoided that are maybe exaggerating the, the problem, like for example certain drugs which are used for anesthesia or certain drugs that could cause cardiac arrhythmia. And otherwise I think many of the recommendations are similar to what we also recommend in other metabolic diseases. So avoid periods of fasting and if there are problems, for example, febrile illness, vomiting, diarrhea, things like that, then uh, better come to the clinic so we can take a look and decide if, for example, IV fluids are required, things like that, to take precaution to avoid that severe metabolic crisis occur. I mean, this is not precluding that bad things can happen, but, but still it's something we can offer and uh, certain things that we can try to avoid severe metabolic decompensations. Yes, I, I agree, of course, it's the prevention of vomiting, diarrhea, and we give to the patients uh, emergency certificate for infusion of glucose, like in a, a lot of other metabolic disease, of course. And I mean, regarding treatment or regarding a specific medicine, I think this is a very difficult topic. And if we look at the processes which are affected, for example, this ER to Golgi trafficking, uh, even if it's a secondary phenomenon, I mean, so many different metabolic things depend on ER to Golgi trafficking inside the cell that maybe also different metabolic aspects in the cell are disturbed. And that's, of course, very difficult to tackle with a certain drug. I mean, we have other metabolic diseases where we clearly know where the metabolic block is and then we can say, okay, we give a certain substrate or we give a certain medication or we are able to bypass a metabolic block. But in Tango 2 deficiency, I think that that is probably very difficult because it might be several metabolic processes or cellular pathways which are impaired by this, by this trafficking defect. Well, from my side, since I'm not a clinician, I'm also a fundamental biologist, I would say. Thanks to the Tango 2 Foundation, we are also developing an, an animal model. So um, we're, we are developing a zebra fish. So we're starting to do some, some primary investigation. And we hope that by the development of these tools, we can also um, contribute eventually with the search for some medicines. I mean, it's very preliminary for now, but it's one of the things that we can do from the fundamental biology from our side. Well, fantastic. Thank you all for your time. For those listening, if you'd like to read these papers, just go to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease webpages and search for Tango 2 deficiency. Felix, Pascal, Sebastian and Michael, I know this has taken a while to sort out. 
Thank you all for your patience and for your contribution today. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more from the journal on a wide range of topics, just search for JMD wherever you get your podcasts. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.